Let's turn to Acts chapter 11. We're going to look at Acts chapter 11, 19 through 30. Now, have you ever had one of those those moments or those seasons of honest self-assessment? I mean, the honest kind, the no-frills kind, the real gut check where you ask yourself, who am I really? I mean, who am I really? Not, not who you'd like to be and not who you pretend to be to yourself and not who you portray yourself to be around others, but who are you really? Have you had one of those gut checks? Have you ever had one of those self-assessment times? It's not, and to be honest, we all know it's not something that we naturally seek out. To have one of these self-assessment times is usually thrust upon us. It's usually a circumstance or a relationship or something that triggers, who am I really? Well, I came across a self-assessment of a man named Martin Luther. And it actually, it's, it's so profound because he's so honest all the time. In fact, the more I get to know about this guy, Martin Luther, those of you who don't know him, he was like the wedge that started what's called the Protestant Reformation back in the 1500s. And the more I get to know him, I have all these flashbacks of what a church history prof used to say about him. In the middle of our lectures about church history, and we'd work through, and we started with Martin Luther, he'd be in the middle of a lecture, and all of a sudden there'd be one of those, which he was known for, one of those pauses. He just all of a sudden would stop lecturing. And his hand would go to his head, and we've all gotten used to it. The new stu- you don't always tell the new students from the old students. The new students are getting very nervous, very uncomfortable, And the old students there are wondering, okay, I wonder what he's thinking about, and I wonder what he's going to say next. Well, in the middle of talking about Luther, he said, he stopped and he said, you know, you wouldn't like Luther. And he certainly wouldn't like you. (laughs) Well, Luther had one of these self-assessment times, and here's what he said. I absolutely love this. He says, I am rough, boisterous, stormy, and altogether warlike fighting against innumerable monsters and devils. I am born for removing stumps and stones, cutting away thistles and thorns and clearing wild forests. Who am I? That's me, Martin Luther. The text that we're about to look at assesses us. And it assesses us in a very unlikely way because we're in the history of the church. We're unfolding how the church got started and that excitement of Jesus ascending and and the ripples of the frontiers of the gospel breaking into Jerusalem, breaking into the religious people, breaking beyond the religious people into Judea, Samaria, where religious people have gone and and become Greek-like. And then the furthest boundaries of the gospel actually hitting the Gentile world, breaking the final frontier. And in this story of Jesus advancing his church, Sometimes in the midst of the narration or the story, there's, there's one of those moments of self-assessment. There's one of those moments of, well, who am I? Who am I really? The answer given in this text will change your life. It will set you free. It will anchor your soul in such a way that you will move to become yourself. Please stand for the reading of God's word.
As we're reading, always look for a cue, if I remember, because we're going to read a certain part of it. Let's look at 19 to the end of the chapter. Now those who were scattered because of the persecution, that little now is taking us all the way back. Just turn your Bible a little bit to the left and look at chapter 8. That's, that's where we're picking up. So right now we're picking up what just happened in chapter 8 when the persecution broke out. Okay, so here we are. Now, those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were these daring souls. There were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists. These are Greek-speaking, Greek-culturally-saturated people. Also preaching the Lord Jesus, and the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad, and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. The literal translation is to remain in your heart in him. I don't know why. Does any translate? I didn't get a chance to look at. It. Does an NIV have heart in there? Golly, NIV surprises me again. Wow, good, good. Let's keep going. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, and a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he came, and when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year they met with the church, and they taught a great many people. And in Antioch the disciples were first called Christians. Now in these days prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. And one of them, named Agabus, stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. And this took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined, everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea, and they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. This elders is also the first time the church is mentioned or organized in that way. So there's a lot going on in this passage. The word of the Lord. Please be seated. Lord, we thank you for for moments where you assess us. We thank you for moments where you cause us to ask very uh, personal, very real, and deep questions about ourselves and about you. And we thank you that, that we get assessed, and we thank you that we assess ourselves because there's safety in doing so. And so, Lord, we ask that even now, would you shine on the page? Would you help us to see aright? Would you help us to feel aright? Oh, Lord, would you help us trust you in ways and in areas that we have not trusted you before or do not know how to trust you? So, Lord, we acknowledge our weakness, and we thank you that your power is made perfect in our weakness. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, who are you? Who are you? Are you a good mother? Are you a self-disciplined person? Are you a gifted communicator or athlete? 
Are you a free, independent person? Who are you? Are you a skilled musician? Are you a brilliant professor? Are you an influential leader? Are you a particular race? Are you a certain culture? Who are you? What I'm about to say next, I'm actually, I have stolen. I have stolen from a book that has just come out called Reason for God by Tim Keller. So the upper level ideas that we're just now going to look at, I've stolen shamelessly from him. So as we look at this, I want you to think about who you are. If you are a good mother, let's say you are a good mother. That means that you have no true self apart from being a good mother. If who you are, bottom line is, I'm a good mother, then you have no true self apart from being a good mother. This means you're just a good mother. Nothing more. And what happens when something wrong happens to you being a good mother? In other words, let's say your children never recognize you as a good mother. Or let's say someone criticizes your mothering, whether it really happens or you perceive criticism on your mothering. What happens when you blow it as a mother? You know what happens? You lose yourself. Your soul shatters. You begin to loathe yourself. And you begin to loathe the one that caused you to lose yourself as a good mother. All right, well, let's say you're a self-disciplined person. If you're a self-disciplined person, you have no true self outside or apart from being a self-disciplined person. There's no you apart from a self-disciplined person. There's no you left. So what happens when you lose you a self-disciplined person. Let's say that you can't get everything done in a week. You can't get everything done in a day. Let's say you get sick and you can't keep your schedule. Let's say you, you miss a quiet time. Let's say that your health hits you in such a way that you can't keep up with your disciplined lifestyle. You miss an appointment. You forget an opportunity that you were supposed to be a part of. What happens? You lose yourself. Your soul shatters. You loathe yourself. Do you see that? One more. If you, what if you are, if you are defined by being a successful career, you're defined as an achievement, you're defined as a success in your eyes. So again, you have no true self apart from being a success in your career. There's no true self there. If you're just a successful career, that's it. That's all you are. So again, what happens to your successful career when you don't meet your standards of success in your career? What happens when you don't meet the standards of somebody else for what a successful career is? What happens when you blow the deal? You miss the opportunity. What happens when political maneuvering in your area pushes you out of position? What happens when you don't get that job pay raise, promotion, 
What happens if God in his providence pushes you into obscurity and says, I want you to live and serve in obscurity? What happens to you? You lose yourself. There's no you left. So you slip into depression. You loathe yourself for the rest of your life as a failure. You have a midlife crisis. You blame God. You blame others. You blame circumstances. You blame the power play. Your soul shatters. We could plug in a skilled musician. We could plug in a brilliant professor. We could plug in a budding artist. We can plug in a nice guy. We can plug in a certain race and a certain culture. We can plug in anything, and we get the same result every single time. Who are you? Who am I? Am I a preacher? Am I a communicator? Am I a pastor? Jason and Sarah, are they missionaries? Who are we? The answer in this passage will define you. And the answer in this passage will anchor your soul in such a way that you will become yourself, maybe for the first time. The answer in this passage will give you a sense of self and an anchoring of yourself that you'll be put back together again. You'll be secure in self. You'll, be, you'll finally be established in who you are. You'll be okay. The answer in this passage will also set you free in this way. You will be free to pursue excellence in whatever you do without being enslaved to it. You will be free to work hard in your career without being enslaved and defined by it. You will be free to not move everything in your life around the orbit of self, but now your, your solar system will extend to others. And you'll be free to love others. Free to have energy to pray and think about, spend time and action and influence on others. You'll be free to be yourself, who God made you to be. All right? That's where we're heading. Now, the answer we're just going to look at, but then we're going to see that the answer might not do it for us. Sometimes we have to hear things in a different way to hear the answer. I want you to see the answer. It's in verse 26. Look in verse 26. Now, for a whole year they met with the church in Antioch. They taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. So the name Christian started here in Antioch. It's an interesting place for the name Christian to originate. Antioch is the New York City of the ancient world. Antioch had a population of 600,000 people. Antioch was cosmopolitan. Antioch was loaded with gods. Antioch was, well, as one ancient satirist, or satirist, I think is how you pronounce it, in Rome said that all vile pollution flows from that city into the Mediterranean. In other words, it was the real sex in the city. It was a very sensual place, loaded with all kinds of gods and goddesses, in particular gods and goddesses, and the gods, and they would pursue the goddesses. And so they had a cult, a prostitution cult, where they would image that picture. 
It's a city that, that was beautiful. If you walk down its streets, it had colonnades that lined the main streets. It was marbled, polished stone that you would walk on. I mean, it had all the modern realities and trappings and everything that was big and influential about a city. It was in Antioch. Now, what's interesting is that the name Christian is not given by the Christians themselves. The name Christian is, is attached to those who are Christians in Antioch by that community. So in other words, the community is going around and they're saying, who are these people? Who are they? And their answer was, they're Christians. It's actually a new word. It's a word that's a Mongol word. It's taking Greek and Latin and making a new word. That never happens around here. Just took a noun and an adjective and made a word. Christians, Greek and Latin. So it's actually a new word. And this word is given to them there. Now, if you're, if you're a Christian here this morning, that means that you trust in Jesus as your Savior. Who you are, the answer to who you are is, you're a Christian. That's the point of the passage. Who are you? Who am I? The text says, you're a Christian. Sit up straighter in your chair. You're a Christian. Now, does that grip you? Does that hit your heart? Does that anchor your soul? Does that set you free? Doesn't me either. Now, it should. It should. It should reach to the deepest parts of our heart and anchor it in such a way you feel and think, I'm okay. I'm becoming myself. This is who I am. I can rest now. And now I can get on with living, not being enslaved to all these things, but handle them freely. Actually enjoy them for their own sake. Actually be set free to be who you were made to be. That's what I am a Christian should do to us. But like you, like me, that doesn't do that. And what happens is overuse of words over time, the overuse smooths out the sharp edges of the word. It blunts the word. When we say Christian, Christian, Christian this, Christian that, Christian culture, Christian whatever, Christian... Everything's Christian music, Christian diet, Christian baking, Christian whatever. What happens to that word is it gets so overused, all of a sudden it just, it just turns into a round ball. And it used to be a sharp knife. And so what we're going to do in our remaining moments is we're going to just kind of sharpen it just a little bit. Sharpen the edge so it cuts again. And so when you hear, you are a Christian, yeah. Yes, I am. I am a Christian. Okay? Can you do this? All right, let's go. Alexander the Great. That's a great name, isn't it? Alexander the Great. What a great name. 
Who wouldn't want that name? I mean, that name in itself it contains greatness, doesn't it? I mean, that name is known by everyone in the world today. Almost guaranteed. Anyone that's had a history book knows who Alexander the Great is. Do you realize for the past 200, 2,300 years, every living creature since 2,300 years ago has known that name? Alexander the Great. I mean, that name has greatness. It, it talks about the conqueror of the world who did it by his 23rd birthday. He was a brilliant military mind. He was legendary in his courage. He was unrivaled as a warrior. His name was revered and his name was feared all at the same time. In, in his generation, every living creature trembled or was thrilled to their soul when they would hear the name. His name was him. Now, in Alexander's army, this is in his late 20s, he died in his late 30s. It's a very mysterious death. Can't quite figure out. You got conflicting historical resources and historians that kind of give certain accounts. No one really ultimately, I think, I personally believe, do not know how he died. Uh, but there was in his army, while he was in his late 20s, a young man who was named Alexander. And this young man who was named Alexander was growing a reputation of being a coward. And that reputation began to move throughout the camp over the months, over the years. And finally it reached Alexander's ears. And so he summoned that young man to himself. And he said to that young man, Is your name Alexander, and are you named for me? Trembling, the young man said, Yes, sir. My name is Alexander, and I am named for you. And Alexander locked eyes with him and said, Be brave or change your name. I want you to look at verse 26. Find that word I, again. I had one of those days. Those of you that have been here for a while, you know that Saturdays are days from H-E double toothpick for the Hatton household. Uh, this past Saturday was no different. I awoke to my daughter going, Daddy, come here quick. You've got to see this. <laughs> I don't like those words. Not at all. I go running into our bathroom. And uh, things are overflowing in the shower. And so we've had a quite an interesting weekend with our septic system. Um, so the, when you look at this verse in 26, the look at the word called. The English Standard Version has called. What it literally means is this. It literally means to take the name of. This is the first time they were called Christians. It means literally is the first time they took the name of Christian. It literally means they assumed the name of. They became identified with Christians. To be a Christian is to take the name of Christ. Now, Christ in the Greek stands for Messiah. Now, the Greeks didn't have the same notion and same use of the word Messiah that the 
Jewish Israelites did. For a Jew or for an Israelite, the term Messiah referred to the anointed one who saves the day. It referred to a descendant of David who saves the day. It refers to this ultra son of man, this supra, ultra, otherworldly, heavenly hero who comes to save the day for Israel. It refers to God's champion who saves the day for Israel. That's Messiah for Israel. Now, the Greeks, again, they didn't have that use. They didn't have that understanding of Messiah. So what happens in this passage is very, very interesting. Messiah is not used when these two from Cyrene and Cyprus, or whoever these daring souls are, that decided to say, you know, maybe, maybe, didn't Jesus say something about all the earth? Not just the Israelites and the Jews. Can you imagine the first conversation? You know, Saul talking to Cyrus, and he says, Saul says to Cyrus, let's see if the Greeks will listen. With all the gods. And so they walk up, and what they say is, they preach, look at verse 20, the Lord Jesus. Now, Lord is used five times in this passage. Look at 20. Twice in 21, then 23, and then 24. To both Jews and to both Greeks, they both understood Lord or champion. The Israelites had their champion. They called him the Messiah. But all, everyone knew, especially the Greeks, they had their champions and they were called lords. They were hero men. They again were these, there were three kinds of them, we don't need to get into all of them, but the whole pantheon of gods in the Greek culture was that they understood what heroes were about. They understood what champions were about. They understood that. And so these guys come in and they speak Lord to these Greeks. And so the Greeks were always seeking a hero man. The Greeks were always seeking a Lord. The Greeks were always seeking a Messiah or champion. They had Zeus, Apollos, Apollo, Poseidon. They deified Achilles. Anytime a Spartan hero or someone like Achilles lived a very courageous or an Alexander the Great, what they did is they deified him. They were always looking for lords. They were always looking for champions. They were always seeking these great heroes in this culture. Always. And they would add them to their list. I mean, if you kept up with Greek culture, if it didn't get shut down, they would have continued to add in Greek gods. The pantheon would just get larger and larger because they were always looking for the champion of all champions. The Lord of all lords. They were always seeking a champion. Now why? Because the Greeks had it right. The Greeks had a a better understanding of human nature than maybe we do. The Greeks understood that within human nature, the DNA of being a human being, there is an insatiable need for a champion. In other words, the Greeks understood that 
They desired and they knew that ultimate love and ultimate truth and wisdom for all the ages and an ultimate identity and meaning and purpose in life and an ultimate salvation and ultimate comfort and ultimate inner peace and ultimate well-being and ultimate salvation and everlasting immortality was never found within themselves. It only was found outside themselves through a champion. A champion that they would identify with would bring life and give them a sense of self, give them salvation. So a champion is needed in the Greek culture to secure these things. So these daring souls, what they did is they, from Cyprus and Cyrene, in verse 20, we see that they arrive from these areas, they come to Antioch, they speak to the Hellenists, and what they do is they preach to this New York City in the ancient world, they preach Jesus is the champion of all champions. He's the champion you're looking for is what they end up doing. And perhaps in one of their studies, they might have done this. They probably told the folks in Antioch about how some men came for God's champion in the darkness of the night one night, in the last part of his days on earth. And they probably said they came using the text. They probably came from John and saying that, you know, they came at night, these men looking for God's champion. And they had torches and lanterns. And while they were walking, these eerie shapes slithered around them as they moved up into the garden. And these men also carried weapons, and when they were approaching, as the slithering flashing of light and shadows is approaching, it says that God's champion saw them from a distance and approached them. And while God's champion approached them, he called out to them and said, Who are you looking for? And these men said, Jesus of Nazareth. And God's champion said, I am he. And the text said, these men hit the ground. And don't miss this. Not because they wanted to. Because they had to. Glory pushed them down. And these This champion, these men from Cyprus and Cyrene, they walk into a pantheon of gods. A city that has a God for everything. Because they understood that human nature is a God factory. And they walked in and they said, the God you're looking for, the champion you're looking for is Jesus. And so what they did is they probably went in and they told them that God's champion, he became a man and God's champion suffered even unto death. And then God's champion conquered the grave and then God's champion rose from the dead. And God's champion reigns now in heaven, securing ultimate love, securing ultimate peace, securing ultimate salvation, securing ultimate acceptance, securing an ultimate identity, a sense of self. Meaning and mattering and purpose in life. Securing all the things that you long for. And all the things that you're always trying to find in other places. And all the gods. And do you see what the text says? 
God's hand was strong in this message. And Antioch was turning upside down so much so, people started asking, who are these people? And their own answer they gave. They are Christians. They take the name of God's champion, the Christ. Powerful stuff. Now, to be a Christian is to take the name of Christ. So to be a Christian is to take the name of God's champion. So who are you this morning? What I want you to see as we end here, there is no neutral ground here. Who are you? Everyone answers. And everyone answers with an answer of taking the name of some God. In other words, we all believe in God. Every single human being on the face of the earth believes in God. Even the one that says he's an atheist, he believes in God. Every single person on earth is taking the name of a God to give them an identity, to give them a sense of who they are, to actually find love and peace and happiness and comfort, to find themselves salvation and immortality, to live forever and ever. Now, for some of us, that's being a good mother. For others of us, that's having a successful career. For others of us, that's being a good communicator. For another, it's whipping them down at Wall Street. For another, it's beauty. And now we can go on and on and on and on and on and on. So I want us to see that who are you? There's no neutral ground. You are somebody. You are who you trust. Okay? So what happens here? Those that, that trust Jesus, as this passage is saying, the context is people that are trusting in this God's champion. You are a Christian, and what that means is that you build your life now. You're building your salvation now. You're building, as one writer is saying, your identity now around God's champion. You're building your meaning and your purpose around Him. You're building your relationships around Him. You're raising your family around him. You're taking his name. In other words, his love and his acceptance is now what you build your life around. And it reaches into your heart in such a way it defines you. His love and his acceptance now grips you. You're now okay. You now actually rest and who you are. And so now you handle your career and your marriage and your relationships and your friendships and being a nice guy differently. They don't enslave you. You handle them. Okay? So His grace and His glory now sets you free. His grace and His glory now drives you. You're not enslaved by these other things. You're a Christian. You take the name of God's champion. I want you to notice what happens when this does take place in your life. It's one of those 
the story behind the story. The main point is, who are you? And the answer is, you're a Christian. And we say, that's dull. I don't get it. It doesn't cut me anymore. And the text pushes in all around the setting, pushes in. Well, it means that you take the name of Christ and you say, I still don't get it. And you say, well, that's a Messiah. The Hebrews were looking for this superhero to save the day. Well, the Greeks were too. They were looking for the next Achilles. They were looking for the next Alexander the Great. They were looking in their pantheon of lords and kings and champions. And the answer was, there's the champion, God's champion, who rules them all. In fact, Paul, who's in the story, reflects on it and says, you know, when, when Jesus was exalted, his name is above all names. And at his name, every knee will fall. Every tongue confess, this is the Lord. This is the champion. All right? Now, when that starts whittling itself into your soul, and your life is put together around that, and that this champion accepts you, loves you, binds himself to you, knows you, names you, you become who you were meant to be. And now you're set free. Now I want you to see how that's illustrated here. Did you notice that someone shows up in this passage who we haven't seen for a while? Who is it? Barnabas and Paul. Do you realize it's been two chapters since we've heard about Paul, who was Saul and is becoming Paul in these next couple chapters? In time-wise, it's been eight to ten years. Eight to ten years, we know nothing of him. Nothing. Silence. He's in obscurity. No name recognition. No one knows who he is. No one mentions his name. Remember the last time we saw him, his name was spurned, and his name, the apostles didn't even want to see him. Barnabas had to go in and say, look, it's okay. His name was not a favorite name, and he's in obscurity, but now he comes to the forefront. And I want you to see that while he had no name recognition, I can imagine that at that time he had no name in himself, only one name to build his life around. Only one name that put him back together. Only one name that began to anchor his heart and set him free, so much so that in another book he says, listen, if I die, I die. Because it's the great gain and I don't know what to do. Because, oh, I want to go. Because life for me is Christ. It's Christ. I build my life around Christ. Now, that's happening, and he shows up. Now, don't miss this. Barnabas is the one that went to get him. Barnabas to the rescue again. Isn't that incredible? I want you to see this. The ministry is so booming. The ministry is so powerful, and Barnabas is the preeminent figure in it. He's the one teaching. He's the one at the forefront. He's the one everyone's looking to. And in the middle of all this success... He walks away and brings in Paul. 
Don't miss what happens here. Until this point, it was always Barnabas and Saul. For the rest of chapter, for the rest of Acts, and for the rest of church history, it's Paul and Barnabas. Barnabas willingly decreased so that Paul would increase. Barnabas willingly yielded his preeminence to another. How in the world could he do that? Well, we saw earlier in a text, it says when he started seeing the grace of God, because he was the first one on the scene sent from Jerusalem to see what was going on up there, it says when he saw the grace of God, he was glad. Barnabas had lots of practice of building who he was around God's champion. He was secure. He had a sense of self. He didn't have to lead the next reformation. So who are you? Who are you? Aren't you glad Jesus doesn't say be brave or change your name? But you are a Christian. You take the name of God's champion. Not because now you're doing all this stuff for him, but because he has now known you and named you, and he has now loved you and accepted you, and he was God's champion willingly and gladly for you. And when you get that, you get put back together again, and you're now set free. Amen.